welcome to Automate, Delegate, Eliminate, where we discuss e-commerce issues and whether our guests today automated, delegated, or eliminated them and why. Your host is Will Christensen, co-founder of Data Automation. And again, welcome to Automate, Delegate, Eliminate. All right. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Automate, Delegate, Eliminate. I'm your host, Will Christensen. This is sponsored by Data Automation. And this is our second season where, again, we are out there interviewing the founders of SaaS companies and the like who have brought automation, delegation, or elimination to our world. And we're going to learn a little bit about what that hero's journey was like in creating that software. Today, I have a close friend of mine on the podcast, Chad Rubin from Cubana is here. I'm going to read his bio here so everybody can get to know him a little bit better. So Chad, having worked in corporate finance, covering internal stocks, started his own e-commerce storefront in 2008. As CrucialVacuum.com, Chad discovered the real need to solve was the most serious problem in order processing and inventory management, and that caused millions of dollars of loss for e-commerce sellers, just like his his e-commerce seller every year. Like most of the best SaaS products out there, the need to solve this pain point was so powerful that he built his own piece of software. That's where Scubana came from. And so we're very excited to welcome Chad to the show today. Uh, grateful to be here. Thanks, Will. Awesome. So Chad um, Chad and I actually have been working together over several years now. Um, we became a, a preferred partner of the Scubana team in helping connect and automate. And we, like he would speed dial me when we were at conference conferences and we'd be like, dude, Will, come over here. I need you to help me close this guy. And we'd get really excited about helping people connect things and automate things. And, and honestly, Scubana and data automation have grown together as we've as we've been able to look at some of these processes. And so I'm very familiar with Scubana's uh, software and I was very excited to have Chad join us because obviously I know a little bit about some of these pieces of software. So I'm really excited to hear about this. Chad, anything more that you would like to add about what Scubana does? And I heard that we could probably spend the next hour and a half talking about all of the things that, that it does. Yeah. That broad, broad strokes here is if you know Shopify, Shopify is everything above the earth, right? It's all the retail locations that you shop in. In fact, your grandmother can go and start a Shopify store tomorrow. So Shopify is everything you can see above the earth. And Stubana is everything underground that you can see. And as these digitally native brands have been scaling, it's never been easier to scale and to sell more. It's been harder to manage and to operate, especially as they go multi-channel. So we are the peanut butter to their jelly. Right, we're everything underground to enable and empower brands to run and automate their entire business. Beautiful, beautiful. So, so if Shopify is the upper, you're the systems. If I'm if I'm looking at an ant hill and there's tons of like storefronts around the ant hill, you're the maze and the worker ants that are everything that are going on inside fulfilling what the uh, outer side is going on and doing. Yeah, that, and, and to use my peanut butter and jelly analogy, like you know, if Shopify is the peanut butter and we're the jelly. Data automation would be like the the layer, the saran wrap around that jelly and peanut butter. There you go. Right. Got it. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right. So how does your software differ from other, and I've heard it called inventory management solution, order management solution. How, how would you say that your software differs from some of the competitors that are out there? So, I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, let me, let's see where to begin. So number one, I think we we built it from my own DNA, from my own challenges as a brand. And I think that's super important. We started dogfooding and building it around what I've experienced in the real world. 
Uh, the second piece I would say is that we've actually built order management and inventory management together. Right before there was an e-commerce, a lot of these softwares separated and siloed out inventory from order management and from purchase orders and from forecasting. It was all just separate apps. We've went ahead and bundled them together into one. So the power of unification then is compounding. And what I mean by that is that once you unify, you now have enough rules and logic to be able to automate off of that, along with actually understand your profit across the entire business because we hit all those other touch points. Beautiful. Okay. And tell us about your personal origin story. How do you fit into the, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit in your bio, but how do you fit into the picture of founding this product? Well, I struggle. So in software, there's no laws or, and I'm sure you come across this working with other SaaS companies. There's no laws around advertising what you do versus what you actually truly execute on. And so what I found was I had a problem. I needed to solve for it. And I always viewed selling multi-channel as uh, it's not a zero-sum game. I wanted to be on every channel I, I, I could possibly be on. So that's Amazon and eBay and Shopify and Walmart and Wayfair and Overstock and Groupon. I needed a multi-channel system that could actually do what I needed and put it all together and automate my business. And I tried every software out there. You can Google multi-channel inventory. You can see all these other people come up. But when you get under the hood, you realize there's no engine. The car can't drive. So I signed agreement after agreement, failed onboard, failed proof of concept, straight out lies. And so we started Stubana out of that pain. And it really came down to Stubana or NetSuite. Uh, and Stubana, NetSuite was like a seven-figure deployment. It's also a beast to manage. It's super painful and agonizing to actually implement with massive custom resellers and implementation managers. And you need to hire people to manage it. And I was like, no, there has to be a better way. And so we started Stubana out of that, right? Stubana has the same horsepower that NetSuite does, not only at a fraction of the cost, but we can actually onboard in three to four weeks versus three to four years. Got it. So how did you, you've talked about how you got the idea for the software, but I want to go into that a little deeper. At what moment did you realize, oh crap, I really need to build my own piece of software here? What, 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 what was it that made you decide, you know what, I'm going to build it? Uh, well, I failed to build it the first time. So the exact and precise moment was I was working with my business partner, DJ, we were coming up with the scope and the specs around Stubana, and he would Google these competitors, and I would give them email responses as to how they were not sufficiently handling my specs or what we needed, or they couldn't handle my order volume. And so we finally, we tried to build in India. That didn't work. And I was like, there, there's so much friction in this process. Like, there has to be a better way. It doesn't require NetSuite. Like, this, to me, I just heard, like, cash register bells in my back in the back of my head. I was like, this is a real opportunity. And before this, I was just hucking, you know, I mean, we were manufacturing vacuum filters and coffee filters and selling direct consumer. That's solving a problem. And it's a super large fishing pond that we were fishing from. But I saw this to be a much bigger problem that needed to be solved that could have a very nice outcome for our employees, our investors, and our families. So what were the moments like when you realized exactly what the software needed. Like what, like I mentioned that uh, Mark Zuckerberg moment where he realized relationship status needed to be part of, of Facebook. Any, any moments where you were like, oh yeah, we were looking at it and when we were like, oh, PO forecasting, it has to have that or, or, or whatever, whatever that, that feature might be. Anything that jumps to mind? Well, I think a little different from Mark, I give credit to other people that have been along the journey. 
So my business partner, DJ, like I just wanted an inventory system, right? I was like, I want an inventory counting system. That's all I need. And DJ, DJ was like, Chad, you, you think you need an inventory system, but what you need is an operations platform with everything unified. And you need to have order management and the point of inception for the order with the inventory to make it all work, to have the kind of analytics that you want as a business owner, like operating profit per SKU with all those shipping fees included, for example. And so that credit actually comes from D DJ. Now, I also credit him for scope creep, right? Because I just wanted a simple inventory system. <laughs> <laughs> and this thing exploded into a massive viable product, not a minimum viable product. This was a massive viable product that required so many more resources than we initially could even fathom. So we're talking about it's a new version of the MVP. You were a massive viable product to begin with. Yes. Correct. Did that create it? And I know it did to some degree, but I'm curious, what kind of problems did the idea of going after a massive viable product versus something? I mean, you wanted a simple inventory system and you got a massive viable product. What what sort of uh, problems uh, did that create in the org as you as you began to scale and grow? I think speed to market. Uh, although we actually got to market fairly quick, but it was essentially... I mean, I think it was definitely speed, the scope of the project increased, which means we had to have more investments associated with it uh, and more investment dollars, meeting more developers, meeting more more employees. Uh, you know, managing human talent is probably one of the hardest jobs to as a as a CEO and as an executive at a company, managing expectations. So it opened up a lot, but I also think it also opened up uh, the idea, like that's what made us different, right? And it's thinking out of the box or doing the hard things that sometimes actually bears the most fruit. Interesting. So obviously, you know, had to overcome some of those challenges, the delays to market, you know, some of the things I know from my experience with Skubana, you know, there were some really buggy moments there in the beginning where some things were like, oh yeah, that doesn't really work just right. And we had to kind of figure that out together. And and it was a process for you to, to kind of come in there. And I remember coming to you at times and asking like, well, can it do this? And you were like, sorry, Will, we are focused on making Skubana do this. And there became that moment where you had to kind of narrow the vision for what you wanted to do a little bit. Tell mm -hmm. us about that. What, what, what made you guys decide, okay, instead of doing everything for everybody, we're going to do this right for these specific individuals. What, what, what was it that made you decide to do that? I think going after specialized expertise has a tremendous amount of value. And the second thing that we did, which I think was also incredibly smart and not my idea, right? I just try to partner and be around people who are smarter than myself. So we had went to a, the Shopify conference, the Unite conference three years ago, I believe, and they had this app store and an open ecosystem. And we were like, huh, you mean we could actually get other, we can essentially add strength to our platform and let other people like data automation build into us without us having to build it and could never, no one has to re-platform off of Skubana again if we get, if we build the right ecosystem from the ground up. And so I think that is also was a huge benefit early on was building out an open API, a REST API, building out an app store and letting people build into us. I think that was a great decision. And so we specialized, we focused on, we shook what our mama gave us and had our core operating system and let people build around the ecosystem to enhance our offering. Yeah, heard. 
So shifting gears a little bit here, think back to the beginning of when you're like, okay, I'm going to shift from the vacuum cleaner thing a little bit. That's still going to run. It's still active. It's still functional, but I'm going to shift a lot of my energy over here. What did you do to keep your family afloat in those times? Did you have enough money coming in from the other and it could kind of autopilot? So your your family and, and your personal resources were, were afloat? Or did you have to kind of, you know, fly by the seat of your pants there for a minute to, to, to figure out how to fund this thing? So I'm a first-generation Amazon seller. And so when you get the opportunity to embrace Amazon when they first launch a marketplace, sooner than most of the other 5 million merchants that are now on the platform today, there is a, uh, a benefit to that. And that benefit was that we've been able to do very, very well in the e-commerce game because we were first to market. So I was blessed with that to a degree uh, where we had a cash cow business and selling replenishable products with a very large total available market, the size of like internet penetration. You know, there's a more than one vacuum cleaner in most people's homes in the United States. And that's the market we were going after. Uh, so when it came to solving this problem, I thought, first of all, I, in my twenties, I was like, by the way, you can't see my hair loss right now. But in my twenties, I thought I was invisible, indestructible, and I had so much energy, right? And this is also pre having a child, which also has been a shift for me. <laughs> so the shift to starting another business, I was like, ah, no big deal. I'll just start another business. I can do it. I can run two. I can run three. Jack Dorsey does it with Square and with Twitter. And uh, it actually became more challenging than initially anticipated. And so luckily, that business was continuing to go to go on and certainly is, has ups and downs and is, has highs and its, and its troughs for sure. I did believe in the opportunity that Stubana had. And it was a, I believe that e-commerce wasn't going away and that there was a massive available market with other, other brands that had the same problem. So I didn't take a paycheck, by the way, from Stubana for a very long time. We raised capital, didn't get a paycheck, uh, just had my other business paycheck coming in was trying to do both things at the same time, kind of chasing two rabbits. And then, you know, the start of chasing two rabbits, you eventually have none. And then finally, you know, we started to get some traction in Subana after we launched our you know, version one of the product and started adding more resources to it. And initially we were a team of four, then five, then seven. Now we're 34 people. And by the way, in my e-commerce business, because of the automation that we've built in Stubana, I have one employee in the United States. And when I first started Stubana, Crucial had about 30 employees at the time. So we outsourced our 3PL network and fulfillment. So that saved my marriage quite a bit because we didn't have to do pick and pack anymore. <laughs> and uh, I got to ask, how many vacuum cleaners have you picked and packed out of your out of your current residence or or the res you know out of the place where you and your wife were living at the time? How much how much have you had to fulfill oh my out gosh. of? Gosh, uh, I mean thousands of units. I had my 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 apartment. I had a uh, first floor apartment on the Upper West Side of New York. And initially I had pallets being dropped off at my apartment steps and I would be loading them into my apartment. Finally, my wife is like, hey, you need to get this out of here. And it's so hard to find a warehouse in New York City. She's like, we weren't moving out of New York City. That's where our life was at the time. So I got a warehouse in Harlem. 
And that came with a whole lot of other stressors because it was in a not a great area of heart. This is pre-gentrification. Then we moved to New Jersey into Little Ferry and into a massive warehouse. And I was doing the commute from Manhattan to Little Ferry. But with that, you know, you're hiring a certain class or a certain socioeconomic class without doing background checks and with OSHA compliance violations everywhere as we scaled and were exploding with like cartons that were like tipping this way and tipping that way. So at one point, OSHA came to the office. Once I fired an individual, OSHA came and they gave us some penalties. They shut us down. And me and my wife, my father-in-law were picking and packing thousands of orders on our, on our own for a week. So getting that off our chest, right? The focus, I mean, bring it back to the idea of automation and essentially outsourcing your non-core competency allows you to actually unlock non-linear growth. Yep. Heard 100%. Talk about a, an episode that's, uh, we're talking about automate, delegate, eliminate, right? It, it's all about creating that opportunity to scale. So, so bringing it back around to the software a little bit, tell me about what the difficulties were in getting Skubana started and what did you do to overcome them? So first difficulty was getting people to believe in a napkin idea. And that was really, really difficult. I made a list of the top 10 e-commerce rock stars that I wanted to get involved into Stubana and invest because I, I never raised money before, right? My parents had no college education. You know, I was on, I was first generation college grad, but, and I knew I can do these things, but I never actually have done them, right? There's that matrix quote where it's like, there's a difference between people who walk the path and know the path. And like you can know that you can raise money, but like doing it is a completely different thing. So that was a pretty big milestone. So first I got my father-in-law to invest money. And once he invested, many other people followed, which was interesting. And then finally, in my top 10 list that I shared earlier, I had a short list. One person out of the 10 responded to my message, or two out of the 10 responded. And then finally, Brian Lee, from who started Honest Company, LegalZoom, Shoe Dazzle, many other companies, he became our first real investor, like sort of brought credentials to the plate. It wasn't just family and friends in the seed round. It was like, oh no, Brian Lee sees, sees this problem, believes in it, and is going to be part of this vision with us. And he's now on the board today, by the way. So as you sat down, I mean, what was that feeling like when you got the message back from him? And he's like, no, let's talk about this. Like, I, it probably wasn't like a, yes, I'm going to invest immediately. It was like a, let's, let's have a conversation, right? Like he wanted to talk to you, meet with you. He was like, hey, this is interesting. Please go talk to these five people before we talk. So we, we interviewed technically with team, team members of Honest Company and Warby Parker. He had some contacts that were there and they saw what we were building. They understood the tech infrastructure. So we kind of put this through, through this like gauntlet process and then finally came in with money. And, you know, my operating system is typically wanting to protect myself from rejection and, and fear of rejection. I kind of had a wall. I was like, oh, this isn't going to happen. Like he's just, you know, this is just something he's looking into, but it's never going to happen. And it actually became realized, which is amazing. So as you, what sorts of questions did you get asked? I, I think this is a, a powerful opportunity for us to, remember you said, you know, know the path, walk the path. You now have walked that path. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you walked it again, right? You went and got a second round to go look at that. What sorts of questions as, as an entrepreneur in the SaaS world or, or otherwise, when you're looking to raise money, what sorts of questions are our listeners who were trying to do what you did, what, what sorts of questions are they going to run into? Well, it's different questions in the seed round versus the series A. So do you want to- Okay, so, 
let's let's talk let's talk seed round because we're talking about founding. Yeah. So seed round, I think you have to think through every aspect of the business logistics. For example, I remember one seed investor, prominent investor. Uh, I think he was like initial founder of AOL. We're in a room with him and or Huffington Post. We're in a room with him and he was like, so you have two businesses, like what's happening with that other business and what's your role in this new company? And I didn't actually have a really good answer. I was actually like defensive about my response to him. And it wasn't a very good response that he didn't invest. He didn't end up investing money, but thinking through really hard topics. But part of it is actually getting reps, right? Like when you're running a marathon or when you're training for a marathon, you're like doing miles and you're doing you know, three miles and five miles and six and seven and eventually get to 21. Sometimes just having these proof of concept conversations could just help you formulate things in your head. Like you're getting feedback in real time, unfortunately. Hopefully you can get feedback before the real time kicks in. But I was getting some feedback in real time from a lot of these calls I had set up. So if you were giving advice to someone who had never done this before, what would be the number one thing you'd tell them to do? Just go out and you know start pitching people? So actually, I think what I would do is I would probably make a deck and there are example decks online. And when you're reaching out and like cold reach outs, obviously warm reach outs are better than cold reach outs. But when you are reaching out, say, hey, uh, we're about to raise capital. I would love feedback from you on our, on our pitch deck. So getting the feedback on the deck, it's kind of like when you're looking for a job with your resume, you're not just sending your resume out saying, I want a job. And some people do that. Instead, how my approach was with the resume was, hey, can you take a look at my resume and give me some and feedback? Yeah, what stinks? And the thing is that forces the person that's analyzing the analyzing your resume to say, "Hmm, Chad Rubin, he went to UMass. He had a he had a magna cum laude, 3.92 GPA. You know, he likes to smoke hookah and he likes Israel, and right, all these things. And then he's like, oh, my friend smokes hookah, and he also, you know, and so they start correlating and 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 sort of creating, opening their network up and saying, hey, you know, I actually think of an opportunity that's good for you, or I think that you can actually add the books, the most recent books that you read on your resume. Anyway, apply these same principles to the pitch deck and reach out to people for feedback and insight in the direction of raising capital versus asking for money. And it goes a really long way. Interesting. So rather than say, hey, will you invest? Say, hey, can you help me look at And I think that's powerful too, because it puts the person who's viewing that pitch deck in a position of authority and it's flattering, right? Like it's flattering for someone, anyone to walk up to you and say, hey, you I think are smarter than me in this situation. Can you take a look at what I'm trying to do and give me your honest feedback, which I believe is valuable? There's a, a law of reciprocity there that comes in where you've honored them by showing them, hey, I think you're smart. I think you're, you're someone who can help me. And then I think that reciprocity, like you said, it'll turn into a referral to another opportunity. At the very bare minimum, they're going to give you their raw feedback. And eventually, when you start asking for feedback, I think your resume or your pitch deck, they're going to be like, honestly, I don't know what I would change in here. This looks great. In fact, why don't you give us this pitch deck and we'll look at it? You know, like like it, it turns yeah. into that opportunity where they're like, why don't we actually look at investing in you? Yeah, but I also think just to go one more level is like, yes, you'll have a lot of, there's a lot of great human beings in the world and a lot of people will do that. You'll still get some people that say one word, no, right? Or they'll say, hey, this isn't for us. Thanks so much. And I'm, I'm persistent. I'm like relentlessly persistent. So I'll actually write back and say, no, I'm asking for some feedback. There's probably a way that I can help you. I looked at your LinkedIn profile 
and it looks like you know this person, uh, maybe I can make the introduction. You know, like, so essentially, I'm starting to curate and sort of get more connected with that individual on a human-to-human level because it's so easy for someone behind the keyboard that's not talking to or seeing you to just like sort of just say no and move on. Yeah. So I've been trying to, I'm just a a total geek when it comes to starting businesses. I love the idea of creating something new. And I challenged myself about a year ago to create a small business website design firm in the background of data automation. Like, let's see if I can employ a guy from the Philippines just building WordPress websites or, or whatever else came through there. And I've been spending a lot of time texting and just rounding up small business owners and that kind of stuff. And I've found that that human connection, asking them, hey, what's your biggest challenge right now as a business owner? Like like people are just so much more likely to connect with you when you care about them as a person. And it's not just a number and it's not just a piece. So I love what you're saying about that connection. And by the way, it's been a year, 1300 bucks a month. I've, I had this guy in the Philippines that I found a year ago and, and I've kept him employed the, the whole time and we haven't lost money on this little this little crazy you know and and I do it at night and it's fun so it's 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 just a I wanted to challenge myself and say hey could I could I on the side find people who do this and and it's not a massive anything but it it teaches me a lot about you know that human connection and seeing that so I I hear you 100% on the idea of like making that exchange and on the on this podcast right you're honoring me with the ability to share my thoughts and express my views and to come on right and you never know, that's kind of like a wedge. You never know where the conversation can take you. So an example would be like, you're mentioning this about, I didn't know about this WordPress. And my wife is looking to actually migrate from Squarespace to WordPress, right? And so there, right away, there's opportunity that comes about. And so that whole law of reciprocity and the idea of giving and contributing and creating these emotional uh, or human to human relationships is so important especially if you're just going back and forth with this powerful investor who just doesn't care, trying to humanize it and add value, right? And whatever that wedge is that you could add value goes a long way. So that that's powerful. So when you're sitting in there with that investor and he's, you know, he's got all the cards, he's looking at it, he's looking at you, trying to see past the investor to the human and being, what what can I provide of value to this individual and I think I think you're right. Creating that human connection is powerful in relationships. Yeah, a great comment that was said to us in a in one of our capital raise process interviews was, "What are you doing that is going to make me rich? How will Stubana make me rich? Tell me, tell me how Stubana will make me rich." And that's the perspective that they really want. That most of them aren't willing to say, but that is what they're really feeling deep down inside. Which I think is powerful to recognize the core value or the core thing that they're looking for and then speaking to that. I love it. All right. So so coming back to Skubana a little bit more, you you did some raising of money. That was difficult. You got to where you were there. If you were to compare, and how long has it been? When, when was Skubana founded? What year and what month? I would say we officially went live in 2016, but like the date of incorporation, I believe, was December 2014. September 2014. <laughs> so wait, what day did you actually go live in 2016? Well, like we, I think we went live in 15, right? But I believe that we actually had a good product. We had a good product that was viable, in in my opinion, in 2016. But if you ask DJ, you'll get a different response, right? And that's great. That's great that you have that nice banter between the two co-founders. But like, I would say like June of 2016. Interesting. Interesting. Because that's I'm August of 2016 is when data automation really started to form. And I think it was actually right around that time when we were talking Zapier apps. 
in there. So yeah, that's powerful. Okay, so as as you got out there, when you compare what you were then to what you are now, how's the business changed? What was it like in the early days in comparison to now? The states are higher. There's more employees. Wow. So what's different from then and now? Say we have a bigger team. We have a much better product. We found product market fit. We have doubled down on what we're great at and started not doing what we're not good at. So it's extreme focus. And you know, we have 30, 34 people. So there's a lot of different, I mean, everything's different. We're also remote on top of it. And we're now officially remote for the future, which is something that I wanted to do for quite a long time. We just never were able to do it. And we finally pulled it off. And I don't know if we would have been able to pull it off two years ago if actually we would have pulled it off. So I'm, I'm super thankful on that. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot, we're just in a diff- very different place than we were. One of the blessings of, of COVID-19. So this, this episode's being recorded on October 27th, 2020. And, you know, we, it's been now seven, eight months since the inception of, you know, the United States kind of closing down and having the quarantine and looking at, you know, all of those different pieces. It's powerful when you look at the some of the positive things. I think the the ability for a lot of these companies to go remote and the advance in technology and the advance in culture, it's really interesting to see how quickly some of that's pushed. And, and I'd be curious, are there any other outside factors like COVID-19 or like you know the, the shift to online that you can see being a powerful influencer in Skubana's history as you know from where it, from where it began until until now any other trends that you were like oh yeah that really pushed us to get us where we need to be today so i think there's the covid there's no question about it right the shift of offline retail to online retail billions of dollars being shifted to that space we have been a direct beneficiary and it's really sad because it's a much the backdrop of a lot of pain and suffering. And so while my friends are being laid off or no longer employed at the current moment, and here I am succeeding with that backdrop, it's it's a difficult thing to talk about openly, to be honest. But that shift has helped us along with the fact that there's been some compression in our space. So we are the pretty much the last independent company in the OMS, IMS space that hasn't been acquired. There's been two acquisitions that happened in the past two months or so, uh, which have been also a direct benefit to us. So I think those things happening and that shift of spend and e-commerce not going away and my grandmother now shopping online more than she ever has in the past, she actually realizes it's not a bunch of like scam or spams happening. That What do they say? It takes like 60 days to make a habit. And like I think that habit is now fortified given given months of storefronts being closed. Yeah. Two things I'd say to that. My 93-year-old grandmother has got ordering groceries at Walmart down online, down pat. And that was something that she never wanted to do. She always wanted to be in the grocery store. That was an experience that she enjoyed. And so this has forced her there. And that that's sad, but I think it's also good because it's allowed her to expand her understanding and knowledge around what's there and, and created a convenience that wasn't there before. Speaking of the sad backdrop, any advice that you could give to any listeners who have been impacted by COVID-19, who have either lost a job or found a pay cut or looked at some of these different things, what would you tell those individuals? Where would you tell them to look? Because obviously, Skubana is doing well, and I, I would guess that you've probably hired. I know data automation 
we've hired during the pandemic because we've needed additional help to continue to grow and, and, and help other e-commerce sellers. There's a lot there. So number one, when we first started Stubana, it was non-consensus to actually invest in Stubana. And this idea of an order manager with an inventory manager together in a software bundled together. And we've been through a lot, right? It's, now it's looking great. We had a great 2020 uh, and we haven't finished yet, but it, we're, on, we're, we're tracking to have the best year in company history. That being said, there's been a lot of darkness, right? There's been a lot of troughs and it's really the ability to get through the darkness or get through the troughs where you actually can, and whereas other companies have all these other resources being showered on them, right? We're, we have not been a resource heavy company. We, we raised a very small round in the initial days and we were bootstrapped for six years. So finding light and also there's, so I think that's important is like finding that, like going, getting through that darkness helps you come out a better company, number one, because this virus preys on weak people, but also preys on weak companies. And so getting through it, even though you're weak and like going through these learning really hard lessons is, is difficult and challenging. And just having faith that you're going to come out the other side is part of it is just like the story you tell yourself uh, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to a degree. And secondly, is I think that there's always room for the best, whether it's you're the best marketer or you believe you're the best marketer, or you've had this experience, there's always room for that on the open market. And my wife has a yoga business and it's uh, in New York, you know, we had a spike and there's a lot of legal implications around reopening and what you can and can't do and percentage of occupancy. And she's at 33% occupancy right now, which means 70% down class sizes. She's been so impacted, but the ability to get back up and keep going and fighting for what she believes in is just really remarkable. Like she's pivoting and she's had to make some really hard things that she never thought she'd have to do, like being able to furlough people or taking PPP money or rehiring and maybe even asking employees to take a pay cut. Those are hard things. And when you get through that and you have that lesson, it, it is compounding. It's compounding interest. I really believe in that. Yeah, that's beautiful. All right. So <clears throat> wrapping this up, what advice would you give to other SaaS entrepreneurs that are just starting out? If you're, you know, they're like, hey, I got this idea for this inventory management system or, you know, you name it, whatever else it is. What would you tell them? What, what would be the one thing, one piece of advice you'd give, you'd give them? So if they're moving, if they're moving into inventory management or <laughs> stay away, <laughs> stay uh, away from inventory management. That, that's, that's full. We've got plenty of people there. The merrier, right? The more competitors we have, the more, the, the better we look. Uh, no, really. So <laughs> I would say that, first of all, what worked for me isn't going to work for everybody else. You need to follow your own rainbow. There's no gold at the end of mine. So I think that's something to think about, but Separate from that, I think it's it's coming from the approach of solving a problem and living through that problem and then making these connections with people that could potentially have that problem and giving you insight that'll make your product better and more feasible. So do that as quickly as possible. What what like how would how did you go about finding those individuals? Well, so remember, I actually suffered through the own pain, my own pain. And then I actually, the, our first real customer outside of myself was my biggest competitor who I was friendly with. And we would compete, we would go head to head. And I was like, look, Dave, we're starting this business. I know you're struggling with your inventory. I've seen your warehouse before. And I know we're friendly competition. We're like co-opetition, but I think this could really help you. And he became our first customer. And then we've actually brought on many other people in our space. So uh, I think most people wouldn't think, oh, let me reach out to my biggest competitor to see if they can use my software. And it's paid a lot of dividends. And that's just a relationship, right, over time. 
don't burn those bridges. That's there's a there's a there's a lesson, some advice there. Chad, I cannot thank you enough for being on this episode. I think we we got some really good nuggets. We talked about, you know, fundraising and some of the questions you saw there. We talked about where you came to it. We you know, we told the listeners to stay away from inventory management software if they want to <laughs> build it. I mean, it, it was a powerful episode and and I'll be honest, I think there's some good nuggets here for everyone. So thank you very much for, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. That's it today for this episode of Automate, Delegate, Eliminate. I'm your host, Will Christensen. This is sponsored by Data Automation. And we had Chad Rubin today here from uh, Scubana, uh, which I believe is a, a fantastic piece of software. So Chad, last question, where uh, can our listeners find you if they want to reach out? You can reach out to me at my personal email address, chad at stubana.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me lurking on, on Twitter. And uh, of course, you can just go to stubana.com and see other webinars that I've been a part of if you want to learn more. Awesome. Thanks again for being on the show. And, and that's it. You've been listening to Automate, Delegate, Eliminate, hosted by Paul Christensen. 